Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theatre, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Whitechapel Women, Part 4. Content warning. This episode contains sometimes graphic descriptions of violent acts committed against women. In every instance, I will be quoting verbatim from primary source materials and nothing else. If you wish to fast forward through these descriptions for any reason, I invite you to do so. I include them not for sensationalism, but because they are an integral part of the truth. At one o'clock a.m. on Sunday, September 30th, 1888, Elizabeth Stride's throat is cut. Her body is discovered perhaps only seconds after the Whitechapel murderer killed her. Many scholars believe that this serial killer immortally named Jack the Ripper in the newspapers was only a few feet away from the witness who found Elizabeth Stride murdered in Dutfield's yard. The White Chapel murderer, alias Jack the Ripper, disappeared into the dark abyss of White Chapel without being seen by anyone, and he would kill again less than an hour later. Catherine Eddowes was born on April 14, 1842, in Wolverhampton. She was the daughter of a tin-plate worker named George Eddowes and Catherine Evans, 
who worked as a cook in the Peacock Hotel. In 1843, a year after Catherine Eddowes was born, the family moved to London. It was a large family of twelve children, although only ten of them would survive to adulthood. After spending most of her life pregnant, Catherine's mother died on November 17, 1855, when Catherine was 13 years old. Two years later, in 1857, Catherine's father, George Eddowes, died at the age of 49 when Catherine was 15 years old. Two of Catherine's elder sisters, Harriet and Emma, were old enough to have entered domestic service in 1851 before their parents died. Catherine and the rest of the numerous Eddowes children were admitted to the Bermondsey workhouse as orphans. Eventually, at her sister's Emma at her sister Emma's request, Catherine Eddowes found a position as a domestic servant back in her hometown of Wolverhampton. She did not last in the position for very long, apparently fired for stealing. Catherine then ran away to live with one of her uncles in Birmingham, where she worked as a tray polisher. Her family later described Catherine at this time as, quote, very good-looking and a jolly sort of girl. It was while she was working in Birmingham that Catherine Eddowes met a man named Thomas Conway and fell in love with him in 1863 when she was 21 years old. Thomas Conway was five years younger than Catherine Eddowes, and he had served six years in the army before he was discharged for heart disease in October 1861 when he was 21 years old. Because of his service, Thomas Conway was able to draw a small pension from the army. Catherine Eddowes and Thomas Conway, deeply in love, began living together. Catherine had his initials, T.C., tattooed in blue ink on her left forearm. Catherine and Thomas supported themselves by selling chapbooks on the streets that Thomas had written. Together, they also wrote, performed, and sold gallows ballads, songs written about contemporary murderers, often sold to the immense crowds that gathered at the public executions. One of the songs... Catherine and Thomas wrote and performed together, still survives. It was written about Catherine's own cousin, 
Christopher Robinson, who was hanged in 1866 for the murder of his fiancée, Harriet Seeger. Catherine and Thomas were two of the 4,000 people that attended the public hanging. Catherine Eddowes and Thomas Conway were never legally married, but she regarded him as her common-law husband. They moved to London and had three children together, the last child being born in 1873. After her children were born, Catherine Eddowes began drinking. Eventually, she became an alcoholic. By 1877, there is evidence that her relationship with Thomas Conway had deteriorated and that Thomas sometimes beat her. Catherine's sisters, Emma and Elizabeth, both observed black eyes and bruises on Catherine's body when she visited them at Christmas in 1877. Annie Conway, one of Catherine's children, blamed her mother. Annie said that her father, Thomas Conway, was a teetotaler and that her mother's drinking had caused the fights. Annie later testified, quote, Before they actually left each other, she was never with him for twelve months at a time, but would go away for two or three months. Catherine's sister, Elizabeth, tells a very different tale. Quote, My sister left Thomas Conway because he treated her badly. He did not drink regularly, but when he drew his pension, they went out together, and it generally ended in his beating her. In 1880, Catherine Eddowes left Thomas Conway and her three children for good. By 1881, Catherine Eddowes was living in Whitechapel, sometimes resorting to sex work in order to survive, living in a common lodging house at the hellish intersection of Flower and Dean Street, just like Elizabeth Stride. However, in one of life's great miracles, Catherine Eddowes found love again. Her second partner in life was a man named John Kelly, who worked as a fruit salesman. John Kelly is described as, quote, a quiet and inoffensive character with fine features, sharp and intelligent eyes. But John Kelly also suffered from illness of the kidneys, and he had an almost perpetual cough. In September 1881, Catherine Eddowes was charged at the Thames Magistrate's Court with being drunk and disorderly, 
However, she was discharged without a fine by the court. Frederick Williams Wilkinson, the deputy of Cooney's lodging house where Catherine Eddowes and John Kelly lived, said that she, quote, was not often in drink and was a very jolly woman, often singing. Wilkinson later testified that, as far as he knew, Catherine Eddowes was not in the habit of walking the streets, and was usually in the lodging house between 9 and 10 p.m. He had also never heard of her being intimate with any man except John Kelly. Catherine Eddowes began to tell people her name was... Kate Kelly, perhaps because she felt like a new person, a person reborn into a better love than your first. Perhaps she felt alive again. Paul Begg writes in his definitive book, Jack the Ripper, The Facts, quote, Every year, Eddowes and Kelly went to Kent for the hop-picking season. In the 1880s, the acreage assigned to hops in Britain averaged 66,000, and hop-picking became a regular holiday in the countryside to thousands of city dwellers. John Kelly later testified, quote, we didn't get on any too well and started to hoof at home. We came along in company with another man and woman who had worked in the same fields. The woman said to Kate, Catherine Eddowes, I have got a pawn ticket for a flannel shirt. I wish you'd take it since you'd going up to town. It is only for ninepence, and it may fit your old man. So... Kate took it, and we trudged along. We did not have money enough to keep us going till we got to town, but we did get there and came straight to this house. Luck was dead set against us. We were both done up for cash. Catherine, Kate Kelly Eddowes, and John Kelly returned to London on Friday, September 28, 1888, to a white chapel, terrified by the horrific serial murders of Martha Tabram, Mary Ann Nichols, and Annie Chapman, committed by a monster the press had christened, Jack the Ripper. On Friday, September 28, 1888, John Kelly gets some work and earns sixpence. Catherine will only allow John Kelly to give her twopence, insisting that he take the remaining fourpence to get himself a bed at Cooney's lodging house. Catherine told John Kelly that she would try and sleep in the casual ward at Shoe Lane. 
In an interview for the East London Observer, the superintendent of the casual ward at Shoe Lane said that Catherine Eddowes was well known there, but had never stayed the night before. According to this man, Catherine Eddowes explained that she had just returned from hop-picking in the country, and then he said, Catherine Eddowes said, I have come back to earn the reward offered for the apprehension of the Whitechapel murderer. I think I know him. The superintendent replied, Mind he doesn't murder you too. Catherine Eddowes replied, Oh, no fear of that. We only have the superintendent's word that this conversation actually happened. It may not have happened at all. It might also be the truth. I submit it to this record as a question mark. On Saturday, September 29th, 1888, Catherine Eddowes was thrown out of the casualty ward at Shoe Lane at 8 o'clock a.m. for reasons we do not know. She meets up with her partner, John Kelly. Kelly decides to pawn his boots and gives Catherine the pawn ticket for them, and she gives the name Jane Kelly. The pawned boots earned them the sum of two shillings and sixpence. John Kelly is now barefoot, but at least they have some money. Catherine Eddowes uses this two shillings and sixpence to buy food, tea, and sugar. Between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. on September 29th, Kate and John Kelly eat a wonderful, filling breakfast in the kitchen of Cooney's lodging house. And then the money is gone. Catherine Kate Kelly Eddowes told John Kelly that she was going out to see if she could get some money from her daughter Annie. She left the lodging house at 2 p.m., promising to be back home in two hours. John Kelly and Catherine had been discussing the Whitechapel murders, and he was worried about her. According to John Kelly's testimony, Catherine replied, Don't you fear for me. I'll take care of myself, and I shan't fall into his hands. John Kelly also testified, I never knew if she went to her daughter's at all. I only wish to God she had, for we had lived together for a long while and never had a quarrel. Catherine Eddowes and John Kelly had been together now for seven years. Catherine's daughter Annie was tired of her alcoholic mother constantly begging her for money, and so she moved without telling her mother her new address. Catherine knew Annie had done this. So we do not know 
what was going through her mind when she lied to John Kelly on the last day of her life. The next six hours of her life are a blank. At 8.30 p.m. on Saturday, September 29, 1888, Police Officer Lewis Robinson sees a small group of people gathered at 29 Allgate High Street. The people were looking at Catherine Eddowes, who was so drunk she had collapsed in the street and could not get up. Officer Robinson asked the crowd if anyone knew the woman. Nobody said a word. Officer Robinson lifted the drunk woman to her feet and leaned her against the shutters of the nearest house. The drunk woman then slipped sideways, falling onto the pavement. It's not a stretch of the imagination to think that everyone watching Catherine Eddowes in that moment probably laughed at her. Catherine Eddowes was taken to the Bishopsgate Police Station. When asked her name, she said, quote, Nothing. I'm nothing. At 8.50 p.m., Officer Robinson looks in on Catherine Eddowes in her jail cell. She is sleeping and smells strongly of alcohol. At 12.55 a.m. on September 30th, 1888, five minutes before Elizabeth Stride is found dead, Catherine Eddowes is found to be awake and sober by Officer Henry Hutt. When asked her name, she replies that she is Mary Ann Kelly, living on Fashion Street. Catherine Eddowes asked what time it was, and Henry Hutt, the policeman on duty, replied, Too late for you to get any more drink, Catherine said. I shall get a damn fine hiding when I get home. Hutt said, Serve you right. You have no right to get drunk. At one o'clock a.m. on September 30th, 1888, the exact moment that the body of Elizabeth Stride is discovered, Catherine Eddowes leaves the police station. She says to Officer Henry Hutt, All right. Good night, old cock. Her last known words. For reasons we do not know, when Catherine Eddowes left the police station, she did not walk in the direction of home. It is estimated that it would have taken less than ten minutes for Catherine Eddowes to reach Mitre Square. This leaves a thirty-minute gap 
from the time she leaves the police station to the time she is seen outside Mitre Square. What she did then, we don't know. At 1.35 a.m., a cigarette seller named Joseph Lewend sees a man and a woman in Mitre Square. The woman puts her hand on the man's chest. Lewend continued walking and did not look back. At 1.45 a.m., a police officer named Watkins is walking his beat. The night is dark and quiet, and he hears nothing but the echoes of his own footsteps. As Officer Watkins walks into the dimly lit Mitre Square, he discovers the mutilated body of Catherine Eddowes. Officer Watkins later told a journalist for the Star newspaper, I can't tell you. It took me a moment to see that the Whitechapel murder had been our way. She was ripped up like a pig in the market. I have been in the force a long while, but I never saw such a sight. Catherine Eddowes was murdered on September 30th, 1888. She was 46 years old. Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown testified, quote, The body was on its back, the head turned to left shoulder, the arms by the side of the body as if they had fallen there, both palms upwards, the fingers slightly bent, the left leg extended in line with the body. The abdomen was exposed, right leg bent at the thigh and knee, the throat cut across. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. They were smeared over with some feculent matter. A piece of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm apparently by design. There was a quantity of clotted blood on the pavement on the left side of the neck round the shoulder and upper part of arm. Body was quite warm. No death stiffening had taken place. She must have been dead most likely within the half hour. We looked for superficial bruises and saw none. No blood on the skin of the abdomen or secretion of any kind on the thighs. No spurting of blood on the bricks or pavement around. No marks of blood below the middle of the body. Several buttons were found in the clotted blood after the body was removed. There was no blood on the front of the clothes. There were no traces of recent connection. When the body arrived at Golden Lane, 
Some of the blood was dispersed through the removal of the body to the mortuary. The clothes were taken off carefully from the body. A piece of deceased ear dropped from the clothing. I made a post-mortem examination at half-past two on Sunday afternoon. Rigor mortis was well-marked, body not quite cold, green discoloration over the abdomen. After washing the left hand carefully, a bruise the size of a sixpence, recent and red, was discovered on the back of the left hand between the thumb and first finger, a few small bruises on right shin of older date. The hands and arms were bronzed. No bruises on the scalp, the back of the body, or the elbows. The face was very much mutilated. There was a cut about a quarter of an inch through the lower left eyelid, dividing the structures completely through. The upper eyelid on that side, there was a scratch through the skin on the left upper eyelid near to the angle of the nose. The right eyelid was cut through to about half an inch. There was a deep cut over the bridge of the nose, extending from the left border of the nasal bone down near the angle of the jaw on the right side of the neck. This cut went into the bone and divided all the structures of the cheek except the mucous membrane of the mouth. The tip of the nose was quite detached by an oblique cut from the bottom of the nasal bone to where the wings of the nose join on to the face. A cut from this divided the upper lip and extended through the substance of the gum over the right upper lateral incisor tooth. About half an inch from the top of the nose was another oblique cut. There was a cut on the right angle of the mouth as if the cut of a point of a knife. The cut extended an inch and a half parallel with the lower lip. There was on each side of cheek a cut which peeled up the skin, forming a triangular flap about an inch and a half. On the left cheek there were two abrasions of the epililium under the left ear. The throat was cut to the extent of about six or seven inches. A superficial cut commenced about an inch and a half below the lobe below, and about two and a half inches behind the left ear, and extended across the throat to about three inches before the below the lobe of the right ear. The big muscle across the throat was divided through on the left side. The large vessels on the left side of the neck were severed. The the larynx was severed below the vocal cord. All the deep structures were severed to the bone, the knife marking intervertebral cartilages. The sheath of the vessels on the right side was just opened. The carotid artery had a fine hole opening. The internal jugular vein was opened about an inch and a half, not divided. The blood vessels contained clot. All these injuries were performed by a sharp instrument, like a knife, and pointed. 
The cause of death was hemorrhage from the left common carotid artery. The death was immediate, and the mutilations were inflicted after death. We examined the abdomen. The front walls were laid open from the breast bones to the pubes. Behind this, the liver was stabbed as if by the point of a sharp instrument. The abdominal walls were divided in the middle line to within a quarter of an inch of the navel. The cut then took a horizontal course for two inches and a half towards the right side. It then divided round the navel on the left side and made a parallel incision to the formal horizontal incision, leaving the navel on a tongue of skin. Attached to the navel was two and a half inches of the lower part of the rectus muscle on the left side of the abdomen. The incision then took an oblique direction to the right and was shelving. The incision went down the right side of the vagina and rectum for a half an inch behind the rectum. There was a stab of about half an inch on the left groin. This was done by a pointed instrument. Below this was a cut of three inches going through all tissues, making a wound of the peritoneum about the same extent. An inch below the crease of the thigh was a cut extending from the anterior spine of the ilium obliquely down the inner side of the thigh and separating the left labium, forming a flat, a flap of skin up to the groin. The left rectus muscle was not detached. There was a flap of skin formed by the right thigh attached to the right labium and extending up to the spine of the ilium. The muscles on the right side inserted into the frontal ligaments were cut through. I draw the conclusion that the act was made after death, and there would not have been much blood on the murderer. The cut was made by someone on the right side of the body, kneeling below the middle of the body. I removed the content of the stomach and placed it in a jar for further examination. There seemed very little in it by way of food or fluid. The intestines had been detached to a large extent. About two feet of the colon was cut away. Right kidney was pale, bloodless, with slight congestion of the base of the pyramids. The peritoneal lining was cut through on the left side, and the left kidney carefully taken out and removed. The left renal artery was cut through, I would say that someone who knew the position of the kidney must have done it. Liver itself was healthy. The lining membrane over the uterus was cut through. The womb was cut through horizontally, leaving a stump of three-quarters of an inch. The rest of the womb had been taken away. The vagina and cervix of the womb was uninjured. I believe the wound in the throat was first inflicted. 
I believe she must have been lying on the ground. The wounds on the face and abdomen prove they were inflicted by a sharp, pointed knife, and that in the abdomen by one six inches or longer. I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. It required a great deal of medical knowledge to have removed the kidney and to know where it was placed. The parts removed would be of no use for any professional purpose." I think the perpetrator of this act had sufficient time, or he would not have nicked the lower eyelids. It would all take at least five minutes. I cannot assign any reason for the parts being taken away. I feel sure that there was no struggle, and believe it was the act of one person. The throat had been so instantly severed that no noise could have been emitted. I should not expect much blood to have been found on the person who had inflicted these wounds. The wounds could not have been self-inflicted. This tale is far from finished. But I would like to close this chapter with words written by Catherine Eddowes herself. This is the final stanza of the only song she wrote and sang that still survives. May my end a warning be unto all mankind. Think on my unhappy fate and bear me in your mind. Whether you be rich or poor, your friends and sweethearts love and God will crown your fleeting days with blessings from above. Next time we meet I will continue with the tale of the White Chapel Women, Part 5, telling the life story of Mary Jane Kelly and a letter from hell. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theatre on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get episode transcripts and other spooky things I'm working on, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. 
you can subscribe for as little as one dollar a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now, going dark.